Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan, and thank you for joining us today. This is week seven of our study of Christology, which is the study of Jesus Christ. And this week, what we're going to talk about is the temptation of Jesus. Now, before we go into the story of Jesus himself, I want to put as the backdrop of this event the original temptation of Adam and Eve. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read the first few verses here to see what happened. The Word says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it, or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. We can go ahead and stop there. This is the start of human history. We fell from the very beginning. So I started with this because this is the first Adam. And in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is referred to at times as being called the second Adam. So what Adam failed to do in the beginning, which was obey the word of God, Jesus Christ is going to completely do it right. And so he's going to be a contrast and a comparison between Adam and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So a couple of things we want to learn from this is, first of all, the process by which the serpent was able to tempt Adam and Eve because his main focus was to have them doubt and not have faith in the Word of God. And secondly, we're going to look at similarities and differences between the temptations. So now, let's go ahead and go into the New Testament, and we'll see what happened to Jesus Christ. Now, each of the Gospel accounts are similar, but for today we're going to read Matthew chapter 4. Now, if you noticed, this is the very next verse after God the Father tells the people around that this is his son and that he is most pleased with him. 
and we see the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then immediately he goes into the wilderness. He was led up by the Spirit, which we see here in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. That has to be supernatural, because I can't even go 40 minutes without eating. Verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Which, if we take this literally, he is declaring that he is the Lord. He is affirming his deity right here. Verse 8, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. We'll come back to that because that's important to talk about here. Verse 10, Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. This is how you do it. This is how you fight Satan. So what did Jesus do that Adam was not able to do? Because the first thing that comes out of Satan's mouth is, Did God really say, Or if you are the Son of God, then do this. Prove it. And if we understand what happened in the book of Genesis, Adam is standing right there as Eve is dealing with Satan, and he does absolutely nothing. And she is trying her best to understand the command given, but then she succumbs to the temptation of sin, and it manifests in her, and then she takes of the fruit, and Adam apparently is doing the same thing, so he eats it, and they both fall together. But Satan didn't make them do it. He just made it as appealing as possible, but he didn't make them do it. Jesus, however, being God, he cannot be tempted, but at the same time, he's still human. And while he will not sin, he can still be affected by temptation. And so he does it properly. He responds with, it is written, because he is completely dependent on the word of God. So what we see here is that following his baptism, the very first thing the Spirit directs Jesus to do was to go in the wilderness to be tempted after 40 days of not eating anything. The reason he had to be tempted was because part of his essential work of being the Messiah was to also be the second Adam, to fix the mistakes that humanity had made. So, two different passages of Scripture talk about him being the second Adam, and both are written by Paul. We have Romans chapter 5. If you want to read from verses 12 through 19, that'll be a good reference point. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there's two different portions of that chapter where it talks about him being the second Adam, which is 
verses 21 and 22, and then verses 45 through 49. You can research that on your own, which I highly recommend you do. But let's talk about the differences between Adam's temptation and Jesus's temptation. So the first thing that's different about them is the location. Adam was tempted in paradise, while the second Adam was tempted in a desolate wilderness. The second thing that's different is that Adam was not alone. Unless you count Jesus being indwelt with the Holy Spirit, then yes, he was not alone either, but physically he was alone. The first Adam was tempted with Eve present, but the second Adam was tempted when he was in solitude. The third thing is food. Adam was tempted while still being able to eat every other tree in the garden except that one. So it's not like he was lacking or he was being withheld from having anything nice. He had everything except for that one thing. The second Adam was tempted during a 40-day fast. Even though Jesus is God, he was still a man. He gave himself the limitations of humanity, and it says he was hungry. After 40 days, I would be dying to eat something. And then when we see Adam be tempted, he gave in to the sin. He was living in a time where there was no customary practice of sin. It had never happened before, so he had nothing to base it on. Whereas the second Adam was tempted when there was nothing more commonplace than the practice of sin. So a very different environment that they came from. And that's really where the differences end. The rest of them are similarities. So we see here from Adam's temptation that it started with Satan coming up to him, attacking Eve when she was vulnerable. So he tempted her by asking the question, did God really say? So what does Satan immediately do? He questions the word of God, and he knows exactly what he's doing. Eve informs the serpent that God had not said what was suggested. And she didn't even get it right either, because she even said that God said not to touch it. But if you look at the original command in chapter 2 of Genesis that Adam was given, it never said that they couldn't touch it. So we don't know if Adam added it in there when he told Eve, because Eve wasn't even created yet when he received that command, or she invented that herself. Either way, that's a whole different problem, adding to the word of God. But no, she corrected what Satan had told her. So then he moves into a lie, a straight-up lie, contradicting God's word. You surely will not die. And if you took it very literally, we would think of it as being, they took a bite of the fruit and they would immediately drop dead. But both Satan and God did not intend it that way. They understood that it was a spiritual death, that they were going to be subjected to a sinful nature, that they were going to institute death and decay into the world, and they would eventually physically die, just not immediately. So the point of his attack was to try to invalidate the word of God and to directly attack the trustworthiness of God's word. So very dangerous what he did. And he tried it with Jesus. And if you notice, he tries to do the same thing with Jesus in the exact same way. Because 1 John talks about three different kinds of temptation that work every single time. That's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, 
and the boastful pride of life. Satan himself fell from the boastful pride of life. Adam and Eve dealt with those three sins as well. The lust of the flesh, the tree looked good for food. The lust of the eyes, the fruit looked good and pleasing to the eye. And then the pride of life, it seemed good to make one wise. Those are the three original temptations. Eve did the same thing to Jesus, didn't he? The lust of the flesh, turn these stones into bread if you're hungry. Lust of the eyes, throw yourself off the temple and the angels will catch you. Everyone's going to see it and know that you are the Messiah. You'll get all the attention and all the fame. And then the other one is the boastful pride of life. Bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Well, let's ask that question. Did Satan actually have the power to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth? He did, yes, because it mentions from the mouth of Jesus himself that Satan was the ruler of this world, that he is the God of the social constructs and governments of this world. So he did have the power to do that. And why did Jesus not accept it? Because that's not what he came to do. He came to serve and not be served, but to make himself a ransom for many. If he took Satan's offer, then not only would he have betrayed God, which in essence he's betraying himself, but secondly is it would bypass the cross. And that's what Satan was trying to do. He was trying to get him to bypass the cross that would save mankind. I personally think that Satan has always been jealous of mankind because God loves mankind so much, enough to make them in his image. And if we know that, we need to handle the world differently. So Satan starts with, if you are the son of God, in other words, to question the truthfulness of the words God has spoken about Jesus' baptism. God the Father and the Holy Spirit have declared that you are the Son. Well, if you really are the Son of God, prove it. And so Jesus responds by appealing to the Word of God. He doesn't try to show off. He doesn't flaunt his power, even though he could. He had the power, being God, to tell Satan to shut his mouth. But he didn't. Instead, he used the word of God from Deuteronomy to challenge Satan. Then you see an interesting twist in the second temptation. Satan attacks Jesus with scripture himself. Whoa, Satan knows scripture? Of course he does. What better way to know your enemy than to know everything about your enemy? He knows the word of God. He and the demons all know it. They know what's coming at the end of the book, too. They may not believe it, they do not accept it, but they know it. They know what's there. Think about when Jesus confronted those demons that were possessing that man, and they wanted to go into the pigs. They knew what was coming because he said, please don't send us to the abyss before our time. They knew what was coming. But what Satan does is he twists the scripture a little bit by leaving a piece out not only to present it in a meaning that is different than intended by God, but also to make it sound legitimate, even though it is incomplete. That's what he does. Sometimes his lies are bold-faced lies, right? He says, you surely will not die, right? That is a lie, a straight-up lie. But sometimes, more often than not, he's the deceiver. He is the one that will use truth, 
but add a slight twist to it or a slight variation of it to throw off the meaning. And he does that very effectively. But Jesus responds by denying Satan's interpretation of Scripture because the way that Satan used it would set one part of Scripture against another part of Scripture. And that's incorrect. God's Word never contradicts itself. And then finally, Satan promises Jesus that he will give him all the kingdoms of the world if he will worship him. And he responds by the Word of God. So all three of Jesus' responses to Satan's temptations are quotations taken from the book of Deuteronomy, specifically from chapters 6 through 8. These chapters of Deuteronomy warn Israel not to forget God, as they did during the previous generation. So how does Jesus recapitulate Israel's experience in the wilderness? Because in the very same way, Jesus is representing Israel, right? Because Israel wandered the wilderness for 40 years before they entered the Promised Land, and Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness, hungry and fasting. The people in the wilderness did not worship the Lord properly. That's why they were in the desert for 40 years, because they doubted the Word of God and they did not trust Him. And so that was their punishment. That generation had to die before they entered the land. But during the whole time in the wilderness, when Jesus did it, he was completely dependent on the Word of God. And he was able to succeed in not only surviving the experience, but also being able to combat Satan at his weakest physical point and be able to win because God was in control. And he relied on the power of God's strength. So what does this indicate about the nature of Jesus' ministry? It's kind of similar to what we talked about last time. The whole point of why Jesus lived the way he did was not only to save us from our sins, but he lived in obedience to the law so that he could be declared righteous. And through double imputation, the imputation of our sin unto him and his salvation unto us, Likewise, he takes his righteousness and he applies it to us. Double imputation. God fully intended Jesus to be our role model, to be our example to follow. And so what he's doing is he's also illustrating what it's like to defend the faith. What it's like to be obedient to God's word to the point of death. So if Satan is going after you and you're under demonic attack, you rely on the Word of God to assist you and to defend you. The Lord is our sword and our shield. So here's something interesting. In the Bible, Adam, Israel, and Jesus are all referred to at some point in Scripture as being God's Son. Does this help us understand why Jesus' temptation shows similarities to the testing of both Adam and Israel? Let's think about it. He calls them son. When in the Bible does God refer to a human as being his son or his daughter? Only those who belong to him, right? So in this case, Adam, Israel, and Jesus belonged to God. They were his chosen people. And so what does he do differently with his chosen people than those who are not saved? Instead of issuing punishment to the unbelievers and 
issuing judgment, and ultimately being hostile towards them. We, as his children, receive his discipline. We receive chastening. And so he does that in order to make us better, to improve ourselves. So many times we get corrected in life, and sometimes there are natural consequences to what we do. But ultimately, the way he does things is through the process of sanctification. That's what he's intending to do with us. He wants us to be gradually becoming more and more holy. And so we need to be exposed to challenges in our lives so that we can overcome specific boundaries we have, specific limitations we put on ourselves, or maturity needs to take place. And so that's why in the Bible, they're referred to as his son, because they were tested. And the point of these tests is to strengthen the individual. Or, in the case of Israel, strengthening an entire nation, as they were one man. Now, Matthew in particular draws comparisons between Jesus and Israel throughout the first chapters of his gospel. The genealogy presents Jesus as the culmination of Israel's history, and rightly so. The flight to and return from Egypt indicates that the long-awaited new exodus has come. The slaughter of the children portrays Jesus as a new Moses. The 40-day testing in the wilderness is reminiscent of Israel's 40-day wandering in the wilderness. And the Sermon on the Mount reminds us of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Fascinating, isn't it? If Jesus is in some sense retelling Israel's history, how might that better help us understand the Old and the New Testaments? Well, because it's one complete story. They are not two separate narratives. The Bible is one complete history, is one complete volume. It is a continuation of the same story with the same God. Jesus Christ being the one who rescued them from Egypt, the one that saved the children from being slaughtered, the one that instituted Moses as the leader of the Israelites, the one who gave him the law written by the finger of God, that was all Jesus Christ. Through what he did, he is demonstrating his deity and the authority which he has because he is God. In light of this, we should walk away with a few things today. First of all, are you surprised when God allows you to experience times of difficulty or testing or temptation? We realize now why this is happening, right? We need to consider that the Son of God himself experienced the same testing we go through, and much worse. So that should encourage us. So be encouraged today that he does not allow you to be tested beyond what we can handle. Secondly, meditate on this portion of God's word today, which is Matthew chapter 4. Consider the fact that Satan's temptations are not always overt and obvious, but sometimes they are very subtle. So the challenge is that we need to constantly guard our hearts, depending on the grace of God to withstand the assaults of the enemy when they come, because they will come. Guaranteed they will come. And lastly, take the time to study the portion of Scripture Jesus used in response to Satan. 
I recommend looking at Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 8 and memorize parts of it if you can, because it is very good to look at. And with that, that's all that I have. I hope you enjoyed today's study of Jesus Christ, and we will pick this up next time. Until then, take care and God bless you. See you next time.